0: Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of American Scientist's podcast series. I'm Fenella Saunders, managing editor of the magazine. In this installment, we hear from Yun-Suk So, a professor of physics at the University of Maryland. Dr. So and her colleagues fly enormous balloons for extended periods over Antarctica to reach as top to the close of the atmosphere as possible. Their instruments can then record the particles coming from cosmic rays before they break up in the atmosphere. Dr. So told me how her work can help us understand the origin of cosmic rays and why they are so highly energetic. My research is in the
1: area of cosmic ray physics. Specifically, I focus on the direct measurements of cosmic rays using balloon-borne and space-based experiments. We look for various signatures in cosmic rays try to understand the origin, acceleration, and propagation to solve mysteries of cosmic rays.
0: What are cosmic rays and what makes them so energetic? Do we know why they get to be so so powerful?
1: Cosmic rays are energetic particles from space. They are providing a direct sample of matter from outside the solar system. Cosmic rays were discovered about 100 years ago, when Victor Hess uh, discovered these cosmic rays, he used an actual balloon-borne experiment. He took a ride on balloons back then. Although his balloon went up to only 5 kilometers in altitude, he was able to show the radiation rate was uh, higher at high altitude indicating the source was not on the ground but rather in space. So The name cosmic rays came from this cosmic origin. It's been known for a long time that cosmic rays existed and a lot of new particles were discovered soon after this Nobel Prize winning discovery. That was the beginning of particle physics that is high-energy physics as well as nuclear physics. It turns out these particles have humongous energies. In cosmic ray physics, we've been trying to look for even more mysterious exotic particles, as well as to try to understand the basics, their origin and propagation and acceleration using cosmic accelerators. we look at cosmic rays, their energy can be as high as 10 to the 20 electron volt. It's so high and it's one of the big mysteries how these particles uh, get such high energies. We still do not know. Cosmic ray flux decreases rapidly as energy increases. Flux means the particle per unit area, they count per the same area or same time duration for you to compare that amount of the uh, particles that is falling down on us. So low-energy particles are a lot more there than high-energy ones. These particles, as they enter the atmosphere, uh, they interact with atmospheric nuclei and produce secondaries. Now, you can think low-energy particles are absorbed by atmosphere. In other words, we are protected by atmosphere from this uh, radiation. High-energy ones, when they produce these secondary particles, they form what's called air shower from the cascades of nuclear and electromagnetic interactions. These air showers are what people normally call cosmic rays on this ground level. They are not actual incident particles, but rather they are secondaries produced in the air. Nevertheless, Ground-based experiments are used to measure these air showers. While these kind of techniques are so powerful with a very large exposure factor, the limitation is that you can't identify what initiated these showers at the top of atmosphere. What was the actual cosmic rays that started this at the top of atmosphere? To measure this composition of a cosmic rays, what they are, and also individual elemental spectra, we fly instrument in space. Uh, It can be spacecraft outside atmosphere, or it can be large balloon-borne experiments at high altitude. Because of the flux decreasing rapidly as energy increases, the um, higher the energy you want to measure the larger the detector has to be, and the longer exposure time has to be. Naturally, the highest energy cosmic ray data have been measured on the ground with indirect measurements, but it's impossible to fly square kilometers of detectors in space. The direct measurements have been limited to low energies. My main effort has been focusing on this front. So try to extend these precise direct measurements to the highest energy possible, even to the energy like multi-TEV, that is a tera volt, 10 to the 12 electron volt or so, and above all the way to 10 to the 15 electron volt or so, to have enough overlap with the ground-based indirect measurements.
0: So one of the things about cosmic rays is we don't know where they come from, right? And as, as I understand it, part of the difficulty in determining that is we can't tell what direction they came from as well because they have so many interactions in space. Can you talk about that?
1: The bulk of cosmic rays are believed to be accelerated in cosmic accelerators like supernova, exploding stars. When they accelerate and escape and propagate through the interstellar medium, their interactions with matter and fields are the source of diffuse gamma rays, X-rays and radio emissions and so on. So these charged particles are tangled with magnetic field and they diffuse through the space. On this Earth, all these particles Appear to be coming from everywhere. Finding the anisotropy is difficult, but it's possible at very high energies. If you can think of it, these particles are less bent in high energies, so you can actually correlate the direction. The high energy or low energies actually relative to what you are talking about. But at low energies, where we are looking at in space, and we haven't seen any significant anisotropy for us to directly point to something. What we are looking at it is different way. So in other words, all these photons that astronomy would use in different wavelengths, electromagnetic waves, you would be able to point to the source because photons are traveling directly from the source to you. But these charged particles diffuse the space so they lose the directionality. However, what we have is different information, that is, you have more than one kind of particles. Cosmic rays are mostly protons and helium but also include heavy nuclei, pretty much everything in the periodic table, all the way to uranium, also small amount of electrons, antiparticles. You have to look at all different channels of these particles to
0: understand. Describe the balloons that you use for your experiments, because they're really quite impressive. I mean, they're very high-tech. These are huge balloons. I wondered if you could describe them and also talk about where you actually do your experiments.
1: These balloons are as large as football stadium. Its volume is 40 million cubic feet. Diameter, when it's fully inflated, is about 150 meters. When you lay out the balloon for the inflation on the ground, the length from the top of the balloon to the bottom, the length would be even longer than the height of Washington Monument. It carries 6,000-pound of suspended weight. In other words, you can imagine this gigantic balloon carrying about the weight of three cars all the way to the altitude of 130,000 feet. That is top of atmosphere with the residual atmospheric overburden of about 3-4 gram per centimeter square, pretty close to space. This balloon's great platform, particularly in Antarctica, for our studies, because it gives us very long duration. This long duration balloon flights in Antarctica made a revolution in the balloon-borne experiments. By extending the flight duration, by another order of magnitude. Prior to that, traditional balloon experiments lasted about 20 hours per flight or so, but by long-duration balloon flights in Antarctica, we are having order of tens of days. One of those balloon experiments that I've been doing, or I've been leading, called CREAM Cosmic Ray Energetics and Mass, set its flight record back in 2004 by flying for 42 days. So Super Tiger just beat us recently. And in the meantime, CREAM had six flights over Antarctica. NASA is currently developing new kind of balloons to even extend this order of 10-day flight to order of 100 days of flight.
0: Is there an advantage or a disadvantage between balloon born experiments versus space experiments?
1: For the balloon-borne experiments, you're Advantages is low cost access to near space in a relatively short time. And it also provides invaluable hands on experience opportunities for students. While space missions would be much more costly and it takes longer time, but you have a big advantage of being above atmosphere completely being above there which means you don't have any atmospheric secondary background. So it's a secondary background free data. This is a big advantage so the quality of the data advantage on the top of that you have this longer duration which gives you the capability to reach higher energies and a lot better statistics.
0: So I wondered if maybe we could talk about some of the detectors you've been involved in. You've mentioned CREAM and some of the sort of larger results that you found.
1: A lot of new results came out recently and generated big excitement that includes discovery of anomalies in positrons and electrons and also not finding anything unusual in antiprotons. With the cream balloon-borne experiment, we also found that nuclear component of cosmic rays at high energies in multi-TEV, that is, the spectra aren't exactly the same as what was expected from what we've seen at lower energies these spectra are harder and also not all the same elements seem to behave the same way. All these spectral features, anomalies and so on are giving us clues to understanding cosmic ray origins and acceleration as well as propagation. These new results contradict our traditional view on cosmic rays and they provide constraints on these models. These various spectral features must be taken into account in any explanations of the anomalies that we just found in low energies for positrons, electrons, but also at higher energies from the
0: ground-based measurements. Maybe we can talk about how this research could potentially relate to dark matter.
1: We've seen these anomalies in electrons and positrons, meaning there is some excess of these particles that could not be understood with nominal cosmic rays. And the possible explanation for this additional source includes pulsars but more importantly dark matter annihilation source could not be ruled out. We got to extend cosmic ray measurements to higher energies for us to constrain cosmic ray propagation models for us to understand this anomalies that we are seeing. These anomalies in electrons and positrons also have another aspect of this implication on the uh, dark matter models because We do not see any anomalies in antiprotons. What we've been looking at is this indirect detection technique, the annihilation product. If our galactic halo is not as empty as it appears, but rather filled with this dark matter candidate, one of the prime suspects called weakly interacting massive particles, uh, when they collide each other, annihilate, and produce normal matter that we could detect. Uh, what it means is for the dark matter explanation, for the dark matter models required to explain this data, what we know about dark matter, the only thing we know about is that it doesn't interact electromagnetically. In other words, does not emit any sort of light. Dark matter has mass. That's why this weakly interacting mass particle became this really compelling candidate, and we've been looking for this with a different method.
0: We haven't really talked about how the detectors work. How are they actually observing those cosmic rays? To detect cosmic
1: rays, basically we are using the same particle detectors as those detectors used in high-energy physics and nuclear physics, but we make them flyable. To detect antiparticles, you use magnet spectrometers. You have magnet and a suite of particle detectors. So use a tracker in the magnetic field. Then depending on the amount of deflection, you can determine particle momentum. The lower the energy, the more the deflection you would see. The higher the energy, the track would look closer to the straight line. There are plastic scintillators which gives you ionization rate that can determine charge amount. Antiparticles can be detected readily as they bend the opposite direction in the magnetic field from particles. By having also two layers of plastic scintillators, you can measure time difference. From the time of flight, you can measure particle velocity. So from the velocity and the momentum that you measure from tracker, you can determine particle uniquely identify. Above certain energy, you can't really measure the amount of deflection for you to determine momentum. That highest energy is called maximum detectable rigidity. That's about 2 tera or so for alpha magnet spectrometer, that is the most powerful magnet spectrometer exists to date. Above that energy you need a different method to measure this kind of high energy particles. This is challenging. The only practical method that you can use for all particles, so from including protons, while you could use transition radiation detector technique for heavy nuclei, the calorimetry is widely used for all particles instant particles are broken up in the absorber and you are measuring the deposit of these secondary particles, you have to have pretty heavy material to break up these high-energy particles. Otherwise, high-energy particles would just zip through. To measure high energies, your absorber needs to be deeper and it becomes heavy. So you can't really make them fly. The challenge is to make this kind of instrument light enough and yet deep enough to measure such high energy particles. This is where we came up with this experiment called the ADIC, advanced thin ionization calorimeter. In other words, it's thin enough to fly, but then advanced enough to measure these high energies in TEV or multi-TEV or higher.
0: You have a couple of upcoming detector experiments. I wondered if you could talk about what those are like ice cream, also kind of what your hope is that those detectors might help you find.
1: Cream as a balloon experiment had this remarkable success story that is by having six successful flights and 161 days of cumulative flight time. We started seeing this exciting results that was not exactly consistent with the traditional view. We really like to extend these measurements to higher energies. The space station provides such an excellent platform for us to be there. Building on the success of balloon flights, CREAM is currently being transformed for accommodation on the space station, and this is called ice cream, I-S-S, CREAM, to be launched for the space station via SpaceX next year. We are pretty busy to finish this experiment. In any, any case, so this experiment will increase our exposure by an order of magnitude, allowing us to reach the energy much higher than where the current data exists. Similarly, there is another Japanese-led experiment called is being developed. In addition to the existing experiment, AMS, Alpha Magnet Spectrometer, which is producing these exciting results. Soon, ice cream and PLAT will join AMS on the space station. A suite of particle detectors can form a cosmic ray observatory on the space station to solve these mysteries of dark matter as well as the
0: origin of cosmic rays. This podcast was recorded and edited by American Scientist's web managing editor, Katie Lee Corder. The music is Spot, by Ardent Octopus, courtesy of Mivio's Music Alley. American Scientist is published by Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Society. Thanks for listening.